For those of you who don't know, Santa Maria is a small town located in the most northern part of Santa Barbara County. This is Rodney Melville, the judge in the 2005 trial of Michael Jackson, speaking at an event for the Los Angeles County Bar Association in 2010. The county is divided geographically by a mountain range. Santa Maria is 85 miles north of Santa Barbara and is generally known for its vegetables, strawberries, and more recently, wine grapes. Highway 101 is the main corridor and does not pass through the town, but merely passes by it. Judge Rodney Melville was a proud, recovering alcoholic, according to the Santa Barbara Independent newspaper. He even founded a substance abuse treatment court for chronic offenders in the county, citing his past abuse to treat addicts. Melville sought out living in Santa Maria for its small-town life. Previously, he served as a deputy district attorney in San Bernardino County. While giving a speaking engagement at the local library in 2013, he said, Santa Maria had everything I wanted, a small town, a parade, and a rodeo. In Santa Maria, he started as an attorney before becoming a judge. Two years before his 2007 retirement, the Michael Jackson case fell in his lap. Michael Jackson's ranch is located in Santa Barbara County, north of that mountain range. For the purposes of filing lawsuits in Santa Barbara County, there is a local rule that is inviolate. That rule is, what happens north of the mountains stays north of the mountains. <laughs> this explains why People versus Michael Jackson was tried in Santa Maria. From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 9, North of the Mountains. Hey, bub, what's up? Omar, what's going on? Oh, man, I am in the middle of earthquake preparedness right now. Did you know I just put a 55-gallon jug of water in my garage? I did I did not know that, yep. but I also started on the earthquake preparedness oh, you did? situation. Oh, you well, yeah, I, I've got all these survivalist tools <laughs> because I'm not, I don't know what I'm going to do in an earthquake. Be like, hey, can me. I have some water? Same with you me. Know? Yeah, same with me. I've got, we've got go bags in the kids' room, go bags in the bedroom. We've got a big like emergency box with water and a crowbar and a hard hat and a bunch of like terrible food that lasts 25 years like at the bottom of wow. the stairs yeah i'm all set i i kind of feel like that guy in the twilight zone though like people are going to start breaking down my door um if there's an earthquake yeah <laughs> yeah yeah don't let people know where you live it's on a hill yeah let's keep it on the qt but if anybody's listening out there get ready for the big one if you live in california that's my advice so anyway back to um michael jackson so as you know yeah i i was and still am a huge Michael Jackson fan, like since forever. And I've got to be honest, like getting back into this after a week or so of not talking and like going through it, I'm really flabbergasted just like learning all of this stuff. I, it's terrible. I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, feel the same way. And while we're at it, um, I believe like 
what's uh, Gavin and uh, the Arvizos, like his whole, like uh, the whole family, the Arvizo family. They they make these accusations against Michael Jackson, and it seems really reminiscent of the um, the Jordy Chandler case in 1993. Yeah, but there's there are a lot of similarities. There's also some pretty wacky variations, as we've learned. Right, right, right. And I guess for the second time. I think, right? For the second time in his life, Jackson uh, Jackson's house or properties were raided. That's correct. Right. Okay. So I have. So there. Are, I guess there are a lot of question marks here that I think uh, we need to get to, uh, or I guess that we'll get to when we pause. But like, really, I just want to know what happens next. Okay. So the raid took place on November eighteenth, two thousand three. The next day, November nineteenth. Santa Barbara District Attorney Tom Snedden gave a press conference. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you for coming to Santa Barbara. Uh, I hope that you all stay long and spend lots of money because we need your sales tax to support our offices. Snedden, a tall, imposing man with a ruddy face, wiry gray hair on the sides of his balding head, a small gray mustache, and tiny glasses, appeared to be nonchalant and cavalier in his moment before the press. At some times, He was smiling and even gloating. But from viewing the footage again, he seems to be actually quite nervous, like an old guy wanting to be cool. One thing I want to emphasize, and and I'm I'm saying this because um, I I couldn't resist the temptation to watch a little bit of some of this coverage last night on TV. And I heard a lot of uh, apologists for Mr. Jackson say some things that I think we can, the sheriff and I can talk about, that I think are important for you as the media and for the public who is going to hear these things to to be told. I heard a lot of people saying it was deja vu. I heard a lot of people saying it was another ripoff by some family to get money. Snedden then laid out several key points to assert that this case was not a mirror of the Jordy Chandler scandal. I want to make several things clear about why this is different from the last investigation. Number one, It is different because the law in California has changed, and it was changed specifically because of the 1993-94 Michael Jackson investigation. The law in California at that time provided that a child victim could not be forced to testify in a child molest proceedings without their permission and consent and cooperation. As a result of the Michael Jackson case, the legislature changed that law, and that is no longer the law in California. Now, it's worth pausing here to point out that Snedden got some blowback on this issue, as he did overall for his appearance, but here specifically for not accurately characterizing the law change. The next day, he issued a press release where he laid out the specifics of Civil Code 1669.5, which passed through the California legislature following the Jordy Chandler case. The law allows prosecutors to step in in the midst of a settlement between an alleged victim of sexual abuse and their alleged offender and stop it or void that settlement within a year after it was agreed upon. The practical effect of the legislation, Snedden wrote in his press release, is to give the district attorney the ability to intervene in any civil settlement calculated to remove the victim of an unlawful sex act the financial incentive not to cooperate. With the new civil code, Snedden wrote, the practical difference is that it is more difficult to buy minor victims' silence 
and remove a powerful incentive not to cooperate. All right, so I guess he's basically saying here, um, and at the press conference, that in his opinion, there won't be a chance uh, for Jackson to, like, buy off the accuser the way he did with Jordy Chandler. Is that right? Exactly. And, and I should point out, too, that some Jackson fans mistakenly think that it was Tom Snedden who changed that law, but it was actually the LADA's office run by Gil Garcetti at the time who lobbied for the bill. Here is former Jackson attorney and confidant Carl Douglas referring to the civil code change. After the Michael Jackson case, they changed the law to make it more difficult for people to settle out and then obviate the criminal case. Douglas also spoke at the Los Angeles County Bar Association in 2010 about the intentions of Jackson's lawyers at the time during the settlement negotiations with Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman. We wanted to do all that we could to avoid the possibility that there would be a criminal filing against Michael Jackson. And the reality was we were hopeful that if we were able to, quote-unquote, silence the accuser, that would obviate the need for any concern about the criminal side. And we were facing the purple gorilla in the room of, if we don't get this case settled before March, there is a criminal investigation looming, and no one wanted to consider the implications of that as it affected Michael Jackson. Tom Snedden, at his press conference, attempted to clarify another point for the media and how this case would be different than the Chandler case. As you all know, or most of you know, uh, either from being involved or knowing about that investigation, there is a warrant outstanding, and I can assure you that within a very short period of time, there will be charges filed against Mr. Jackson. And after knocking over a microphone... At the time of the investigation... Now I just hit somebody off, but... Uh, <laughs> TV Aztec, whoever you are. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> just got carried away here. Snedden then added a final point. And the last reason that this is different in this particular case, we have a cooperative victim in, in this particular proceeding. So I think there's something, that, some things that are very different about what's going on today and what, what occurred before. Before taking questions, Snedden addressed the suspicions that the raid was calculated to happen on the same day as the release of Michael Jackson's greatest hits album, Number One's debut, in an attempt to hurt the singer's career. Jackson himself, I believe, has said that this was all done to try to ruin his new CD that was coming out or whatever it is he's doing. Like, the sheriff and I really are into that kind of music, but... <laughs> So it really has nothing to do with his album or whatever else he's doing in his life. We don't we don't track him. All right. So speaking of like tracking Jackson, where exactly was Michael Jackson when this was all happening? So at the time he was in Las Vegas and there were secret negotiations between Jackson's defense lawyer at the time, Mark Garagos, and the sheriff's department as to when and how Jackson would turn himself in. But how like how do you get Michael Jackson physically from Las Vegas to Santa Barbara to turn himself in? Uh, that was a question I had for Cynthia Montgomery. She was a travel, she is a travel agent for famous people. And she worked with Michael Jackson at the time. And I should note too, that she was also a prosecution witness later for the trial. Such a crazy story. Um, so we were in, in the, in the room talking about, you know, how to do this because the paparazzi was everywhere and it was just insane. Um, and so my loyalty was still to my client at that moment. 
Um, and I was trying to protect Michael. You know, whatever the allegations were, whether I, whatever I believed. And so I was trying to devise a plan that Michael would not, you know, as embarrassing as it was, of course. So he wouldn't be so put in the public. So he wouldn't be put in the public eye. Um, so what we decided to do was go into North Las Vegas Airport. However, we were going to, I came up with this idea, let's do a decoy plane. We had enough money. So I got into the Learjet. We had my cousin fly with me in the Learjet. We filed two different flight plans. Michael was in the Gulfstream and um, with Garagos and uh, Karen, his makeup artist. To help elude the media, according to Cynthia Montgomery, she outfitted a relative as a decoy. So my cousin actually had a fedora, like he wore, you know, the hat. So it looked like we it was Michael getting into the plane. So what we did was we knew all the paparazzi were going to be in Santa Barbara. So, according to Montgomery, Jackson's flight plan was to head to the Santa Maria Airport, which was nearby Santa Barbara. But in midair, the plan was changed. We switch it, go now, we're, now we're going back to Santa Barbara. But meanwhile, all the helicopters are chasing us, and they think my plane, the little Lear, is Michael. Meanwhile, I've got Michael on the Gulf Stream out of North Las Vegas, no paparazzi. And, um, but then, of course, the paparazzi were at Santa Barbara. So that's when we landed, and then the tail was sticking out of the hangar because we couldn't get it in. We couldn't fit her in. <laughs> and um, um, I was there, obviously, I landed first in the Lear, and we ran into the hangar, and then it was just a swarm of police. On November 20th, 2003, the Gulfstream landed at the Santa Barbara Municipal Airport, its tail comically sticking out of the airplane hangar. The media was already waiting. Incidentally, the Gulfstream plane Jackson was riding in had been secretly outfitted with cameras and microphones in order to record conversations and sell them to tabloids. The owner of an airline maintenance company and the president of Extrajet, Jackson's usual charter company, were both indicted for their part in the illegal recording. According to the LA Times, both pled guilty to federal charges of conspiring to secretly videotape Jackson. Just one more happy sideshow in this drama. According to reporter Diane Diamond's book on the Jackson cases, Be Careful Who You Love, waiting inside the hangar were Sergeant Steve Robell, who had originally interviewed Jackson accuser Gavin Arvizo, and Detective Craig Bonner, as well as Detective Vic Alvarez, Lieutenant Jeff Klepakis, and a videographer in charge of recording the surrender. All of them were from the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department. According to Diamond's writing, Detective Bonner stepped forward and put cuffs on Jackson, and they were double-locked by Detective Alvarez, which was intended to keep them from tightening. After the arrest was made inside, Jackson was transported to the Sheriff's Department for booking. Fox News's Shepard Smith broadcast the cars leaving the airport live. Trace, we're looking at live pictures from the airport. A police car is being trailed by a number of vehicles. Uh, the, the, the rear vehicle there could well be a security vehicle, actually just a van, and a couple of cars in the middle there. How far is this airport, Trace, from where you are? It's four exits, Shepard. It's about a 10-minute drive, depending on how fast you go, but it's only four exits down the road. Santa Barbara is not a very big community, so the sheriff's station is somewhere in... Listen, listen, Trace, listen. The Fox News live footage cut to Sheriff Jim Anderson giving another press conference on the arrest. He is currently being transported to the Santa Barbara County Main Jail to be processed and booked. That process may take about approximately one hour. 
We expect that he will post bail and turn over his passport at that time. I will not be answering any questions. That is what is currently taking place, and that's all I have at this point. Michael Jackson has been taken into custody. Michael Jackson is en route to the... The car ride to Jackson's booking, just like the formal arrest, was recorded. In the audio tapes, which were later played at a press conference by Sheriff Jim Anderson, Jackson sounded comfortable. Put some air on, please. Okay. Thank you. Is that okay for you, Mr. Jackson? It's wonderful. Thank okay. you. Thank you very much. As the Santa Barbara Sheriff's motorcade rode along the freeway, Jackson whistled casually in the back seat. At the Sheriff's Department, Jackson was photographed and got his booking number, 621-785. His mugshot was posted on the office website, which crashed within minutes. A short while later, his attorney, Mark Garagos, appeared at a press conference. Here he is in a clip from MSNBC. Michael is here. He's come back specifically to confront these charges head on. Um, he is greatly outraged by the bringing of these charges. Uh, he considers this to be a big lie. In addition to Jackson saying the charges were a big lie, he soon added claims of mistreatment during his arrest and booking. Roughly a month after being released on bail, on December 28, 2003, Jackson appeared on 60 Minutes with Ed Bradley, claiming that, while in custody, he was roughed up and abused by members of the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department. What, what happened when they arrested you? What did they do to you? They were supposed to go in and just check fingerprints and do the whole thing that they do when they take somebody in. They manhandled me very roughly. My shoulder is dislocated, literally. It's hurting me very badly. I'm in pain all the time. This is, see this arm? This is as far as I can reach it. Same with this side over here. Because of what happened at the police yeah, station? Yeah. Jackson went on about how the handcuffs were deliberately tight to hurt him and provided a photo of evidence which shows an odd bruise on his forearm. With the handcuffs, the way they tied them too tight behind my behind back. Behind back? Yeah, and putting it, they put it in a certain position knowing that it's going to hurt and affect my back. Now I can't move. I, I, it keeps me from sleeping at night. I can't sleep at night. Jackson went on to say that he asked to use the bathroom and was locked in an unsanitary restroom and taunted by an officer. Once I went in the restroom, they locked me in there for like 45 minutes. There was doo-doo feces thrown all over the walls, the floor, the ceiling, and it stunk so bad that one of the policemen came by the window and he made a sarcastic remark. He said, "Smell? does it smell good enough for you in there? How do you like the smell? Is it good? And I just simply said, it's all right, it's okay. Doo-doo feces aside, on New Year's Eve, Sheriff Jim Anderson gave a press conference where he rebutted Jackson's claims of abuse by the police, playing the audio of the ride Jackson took from his arrest to his booking, a booking process that typically takes five or more hours. Jackson's took a mere 63 minutes, said the sheriff, although Jackson's then-attorney, Mark Garagos, later said the whole process took three to four hours. To Jackson's charge that he was left in a feces-covered bathroom, the sheriff replied that deputies left the singer in an empty holding cell with a toilet for about 15 minutes and that it had just been cleaned prior to Jackson using it. Jackson's war to win public opinion by claiming police brutality was a misguided one. 
reminiscent of his attempt to hitch his wagon to a civil rights cause when his Invincible album underperformed for Sony. The audio tapes made Jackson look like a liar, but his family claimed the sheriff's department was hiding what happened off-camera and outside of microphone range. Years later, Jackson's then-attorney, Mark Garagos, went on a program called Showbiz Tonight and explained the booking process with no mention of police misconduct or abuse. They uh, filmed the whole thing, which I generally do not see with any other clients. Mm. So, and they filmed it in case there was any kind of accusations made later. Jackson's bail was set at $3 million. It was quietly met, and Jackson was allowed to leave the sheriff's department through a back door to avoid the throngs of photographers already waiting at the main entrance of the sheriff department's jail complex off Highway 101. The extraordinary bail amount was seen as harsh by Jackson defenders. But several months before, in January, Andrew Luster, who was the heir to Max Factor Cosmetics Fortune, had fled after posting a $1 million bail on 86 criminal counts of drugging and raping three women. The district attorney, Tom Snedden, said he didn't want to gamble on another flight risk, especially with someone as wealthy as Michael Jackson. All right, so as someone who doesn't know the justice system, like forwards and backwards, what happens next? Well, the DA filed formal charges, seven counts of child molestation, and then two others for administering an intoxicating agent for the purpose of committing a felony. Here again is Judge Rodney Melville speaking at that event for the L.A. County Bar Association. Now, the event that really grabbed my attention was the simple filing of the complaint. That was done on December 18, 2003. Mr. Jackson was not present. His attorneys were not present. The DA filed the complaint and had a short news conference on the courthouse steps, or I should say on the porch of a mobile home that served as one of the courtrooms. My court administrator, anticipating that there would be a great demand for copies of the complaint, prepared 500 copies so that he could hand them out after the district attorney made his statements. Well, he was overrun by members of the media. They fought for copies. They nearly crushed him. The police literally had to go in and pull him out and rescue him. Holy smokes, that sounds like a madhouse. And it wasn't the only aspect that felt chaotic. On January 16, 2004, Jackson showed up late for his arraignment. An arraignment is where the defendant shows up to hear formally the charges against him and enters a plea. Right, right, like guilty or not guilty, obviously. Yeah, like uh, in Matlock. When Jackson arrived 20 minutes late, Judge Melville sternly told him, Mr. Jackson, you have started out on the wrong foot with me. Moments later, Jackson was charged with nine felony counts. In a barely audible voice, he entered his not guilty plea and left the courtroom. Outside were hundreds of fans who, when they caught sight of him, roared with cheers and applause. I love you, Jackson shouted to his audience. And within a moment, dressed in a black suit with an armband on his arm, he took the hand of one supporter, climbed atop a vehicle, he began to wave and throw kisses to the crowd. Soon, a videographer and another one climbed up to join the entertainer. With throngs cheering his name, Jackson began to dance.
The music under the fans cheering was actually the song DS, Jackson's thinly veiled ode to prosecutor Tom Snedden. I was one of the few people I would think that gave Michael my honest assessment of things because he and I were closer in age than most. Attorney Carl Douglas became a confidant to the singer around this time. He saw me less as some, you know, high fluting lawyer and more as a, as a colleague, I felt. So I would tell him things that others may not say. And he surrounded himself with people who didn't want to tell him the reality. Okay, but he got on the van and started dancing. I met him after that. His, after that. Said, Michael, you can't be dancing on no van after court. It doesn't look good. Are you crazy? Oh boy, do I remember watching that too. It was like... Uh, it's like when I saw that Bashir thing, I was like, dude, what are you thinking? Oh, big time. Not a good look at all. So what happens after that? Once Jackson had been charged and arraigned, he faced a preliminary hearing. Oh, okay. So what's the, what exactly is the purpose of a preliminary hearing? The purpose of a preliminary hearing is to convince a judge that there is probable cause to go forward with the case. It's also defined as a reasonable suspicion that a crime occurred. This is Thomas Mesereau, who represented Jackson in his trial, speaking by phone. Before there was a preliminary hearing, and the preliminary hearing date had been continued a number of times by Garriga. Before there could be a preliminary hearing, the prosecution switched their strategy. They decided to charge him by way of grand jury indictment. Oh, okay. So we're back at a grand jury situation like with, um, like with Jordy Chandler's case. Yeah, yeah. They're like a pre-trial run. Like, is that like a dress rehearsal? Yeah, like a true theater nerd would say it's like a dress <laughs> rehearsal. All right. So thanks. Um, now, I think I remember from our conversations about the Chandler case um, in the past with like a grand jury, there's no defendant present. No, like no Michael Jackson, no Jackson's lawyers, that kind of stuff. Is that right, right, right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And according to Thomas Mesereau, this can allow for some pretty salacious testimony that could be considered prejudicial that's not cross-examined at all. Here's Mesereau again by phone. There would be no judge and no defense attorney present. The prosecution and the grand jury would be the only ones in the room, as well as prosecution witnesses. The prosecution would call whatever witnesses they wanted, ask them whatever questions they wanted. There would be no objection and there would be no cross-examination. We made the decision to go to the grand jury because we felt it was appropriate, not just for that case, but all celebrity cases, all high-profile cases, is just kind of an American tradition. Ron Zonin speaks here at the Los Angeles County Bar Association event in 2010. This particular case, we also had the advantage of being able to do it in secret, hopefully keeping the transcript confidential and sealed, 
and such that everybody would be protected from the content of that hearing going public before we actually impaneled the jury. We felt it would be in Mr. Jackson's benefit, we felt it would be in our benefit, that it would be the right thing to be able to do. We also felt that if we could keep all of the, 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 the press, and by now it was something I wasn't familiar with, the press with, with trucks everywhere as far as you could see, and we step out and they follow us. You know, just like in the television, you see with, with the camera following you as you're walking across the street on the way to court. Uh, but that was the type of environment we had. We looked for a place to hold the grand jury hearing where there wouldn't be anybody hanging around, and we did it at the armory. We did it at the firing range for the sheriff's office, which happens to be on a number of hundreds of hundreds of acres that are secluded from main roads. The jury would assemble each day at a different location in Santa Barbara in a parking lot that they were told the night before so that no press would be there. The band would then scoop up all of the grand jury. They would take them to the armory. On March 29th, the jurors began hearing testimony. They were asked to consider an additional count of conspiracy, four counts of lewd and lascivious behavior with a minor, one count of attempted child molestation, and four counts of administering alcohol to a minor with the intent of committing a felony. Um, we did get an indictment at that point. Jackson was indicted on April 21st, 2004. This new indictment, called a superseding indictment because it replaces the original felony complaint that Jackson first pleaded not guilty to, added an additional charge that Jackson conspired with unindicted co-conspirators, as Judge Melville described them, to commit child abduction, false imprisonment, and extortion. Jackson was arraigned on the new indictment on April 30th, where he, again, pleaded not guilty to all charges. Jesus, man, superseding indictments, arraignments, like preliminary hearings, grand juries, it's, I'm, it's making me dizzy, I gotta tell you. Yeah, it's kind of a maze of criminal justice procedures and tactical maneuvers, but just be glad or hope that you never have to experience this for yourself. According to a report in the LA Times, the grand jury decision came as a shock to Jackson's camp. The article cited sources saying that Jackson's inner circle had been racked for months over a legal strategy. Apparently, that is correct. Just a few days later, Jackson fired his two lead attorneys, Mark Garagos and Benjamin Brofman. My life is at stake, Jackson wrote in a statement widely released to the press. Therefore, I must feel confident that my interests are of the highest priority. Brofman was living in New York, and Garagos had been juggling another high-profile case. Garagos at the time was representing Scott Peterson, and that case was about to go to trial in the incoming days, weeks, or months. And there was a strong concern that I shared that whenever anyone mentioned Mark Garagos as Michael's lawyer, they would say the guy that represented Scott Peterson, who I thought was going to lose. And I thought that would be a terrible stigma to be connected with in a criminal context. Attorney Carl Douglas worked for Jackson on the 93-94 case alongside Johnny Cochran. Um, Johnny was in New York then. He was, as I remember, ill and unable to travel from New York to talk to Michael and asked me to speak to Michael for him. 
I remember his brother Randy was running things then. Randy was the person I met first. According to Carl Douglas, who was present for discussions with Jackson, another name kept coming up as a replacement for Jackson's legal counsel. I remember speaking well of Mesereau. I know Tom. He is a fabulous lawyer. He had a practice every year of going down to Alabama and every summer working on a murder case for free, which he was a warrior. And I spoke highly of Mesereau. Thomas Mesereau had, according to our interview, this one in person, previously been approached to represent Michael Jackson shortly after the raid in November 2003, but he was tied up representing the actor Robert Blake in a murder case. While I was driving down from a vacation in Big Sur, my phone, which had been off for nine days, so I could just relax and, you know, take some mineral baths and tune out before I got ready for the Blake murder trial. Uh, my cell phone just started ringing off the hook. Um, Neverland had been raided by 70 to 80 sheriffs, and Michael Jackson was in Las Vegas, and his brother Randy, who I'd known for years, and others wanted me to defend him. And I told them I couldn't do it because I was tied up with the Blake case, and they just couldn't believe anybody wouldn't jump on a plane to Las Vegas to see him. And uh, I turned it down. And then when, about a year later, Blake and I had, had a falling out, just as jury selection began, we couldn't reach an agreement or an understanding, and the judge let me withdraw from the case. And within about two weeks, Randy Jackson called me and said, we've always wanted you. And he said, can we meet? And I'll tell you what the situation's all about. And I said I would. And I agreed to, to fly secretly to Orlando, Florida, meet with Michael Jackson and his people. And one thing led to another. Mesero felt that Jackson had been surrounded with more than his fair share of unsavory characters in the years leading up to the trial. Everybody's there for the party. Well, certainly Michael Jackson learned who his real friends were and who they were not when this whole thing happened. And he was in for some rude awakenings about certain people who I won't name, who he thought would stick by him and who didn't. I never behaved that way and never intended to. Do. And in fact, at one point uh, I said to Michael, I want you to, know, want you to know something. I don't want to be in your record business. I don't want to be in your music business. I'm unfit to be in your entertainment business. I want to win this case. That's all I want. And he looked at me like, you know, I was the first person to ever talked to him that way. But it was the truth. I had one thing to do, and that's what I, that's what I did. Mesereau dove into research on Jackson, reading every available book and article on the singer, and interviewing those who he could about his character. Well, Michael was always a very compassionate person. One of the early things I learned about him as I tried to figure out who he was personally, uh, I discovered that uh, all over the world were disabled children, uh, children who were the victims of tragedy, who Michael had supported. For example, years ago in Orange County, California, which is south of Los Angeles, uh, there was a horrible criminal case where a young boy was almost burned to death by his father. He was literally doused with gasoline, and a large portion of his body was scar tissue as a result of, uh, of this horrible event. Michael actually paid his medical bills. I discovered there was a disabled child in Chicago whom Michael had secretly paid that person's medical bills. 
I discovered that he had gone all around the world uh, visiting children's hospitals. That at one point, he had a rule that before every, any concert anywhere in the world, he would visit a children's hospital. And I learned that many disabled and disadvantaged children had visited Neverland and that Michael had helped them out and their families out in one form or another. Another point of research for Tom Mesero, naturally, was the 1993-1994 Jordan Chandler case. I think the worst decision he ever made was settling that Jordan Chandler case. That settlement not only cost Michael Jackson approximately $20 million, as reported, but it opened Pandora's box to a whole slew of lawsuits that followed. You know, employees at Neverland were suing, employees at um, uh, his parents' home were suing. Um, you know, I, I always, I've said this before, I think the word got out, why work if you can sue Michael Jackson? Mesero also decided to take trips up from his home in Los Angeles to better understand North Santa Barbara County and its people. Here he is again, this time by phone, while he's driving to another trial. I have never tried a case in Santa Barbara County, and I wanted to get my own feelings about the community, because I'm a person who's, you know, relies on intuition, instinct, observation, not just what I read. And I went up there on a number of occasions alone uh, in my blue jeans and black leather jacket, and I would go to various bars and just sit down, minding my own business, and invariably someone would come up and ask me if I was Michael Jackson's lawyer. And I would tell them yes and start to chat, and I would ask a number of questions. And uh, I got the impression that people in that part of Santa Barbara County were very independent-minded, very strong-willed, took great pride in their community, and there was somewhat of a libertarian feeling. Their feeling was, we're very law-abiding people. We follow the law. Uh, government don't intrude too much. And I got the feeling they would give Michael Jackson a fair shake. Mesero also preferred in the trial to call the prosecution the government against the wishes of the district attorney's office. Yes, they made a mo as I recall, they made a motion in limine to preclude our calling them the government. And we opposed their motion. We wanted to call them the government. And the judge allowed us to. And was that tactic knowing that the jury there would likely have implicit distrust of the government? No, no. That, would be, that description you just gave would be going too far. As I said before, I felt there was a libertarian spirit in the community. You know, I felt it was a very conservative community, very pro-law and order. The law and order in the community was represented by District Attorney Tom Snedden. Snedden was born in Southgate, California in 1941 and grew up in neighboring Linwood. He went to University of Notre Dame, where he was a boxer. He later attended UCLA Law School and served in the Vietnam War. Snedden, who died in 2014, was a member of the Mount Carmel Parish and participated in Christian outreach programs. Upon taking a job in Santa Barbara, he became active in the JCs, the Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse, the Court-Appointed Special Advocate for Children program, a variety of women's shelter services, and the Youth Football League. Around town, he was often warmly greeted by young men, many who were once at-risk youth that Snedden mentored or coached decades before. 
Despite his kind demeanor, Snedden was a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of guy and earned the nickname Mad Dog for his tenacity in court. One famous case dated back to 1976. After two trials ended in hung juries, Snedden went for a third, winning a murder conviction against a prominent Santa Barbara businessman accused of arranging his wife's death to look like a hit-and-run. But it wasn't until the early 1990s, when Snedden became embroiled in the Chandler molestation allegations, that he began to make national headlines. Throughout the 90s, Mr. Snedden traveled out of the country uh, looking for witnesses against Michael Jackson. You had a website in the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department looking for witnesses. Uh, we, we used to call it an open casting call on who can testify against Michael Jackson. Oh, I think the criminal case was brewing because of Tom Snedden's strong belief that Michael Jackson was guilty and his strong belief that Michael had evaded justice in the early 90s in the Chandler matter. Ron Zonin, who was Snedden's colleague, disagrees. Tom was, um, was the district attorney of Santa Barbara longer than any other district attorney, I think, in the county's history. He was the district attorney for, I believe, 25 years. He was a prosecutor for something close to 40 years, starting his career in Los Angeles. He was very talented, very gifted, and very capable. He was compassionate, and he was um, um, put upon very unjustly by Garagos, by Messero, who all decided that he was going to be the fall man. They just accused him of one impropriety after another, none of which were true. What are some of the improprieties? Well, of, of um, you know, seeking vengeance um, because they weren't able to get a conviction on the first investigation, that they want notoriety, that they want fame, uh, that he wants to run for public office, something higher than district attorney in Santa Barbara. And anybody who knew him knew that was utter nonsense. He was an eminently decent man and a, uh, a, an appropriate lawyer um, who had no ulterior motive whatsoever except for the fact that a child had made an allegation against a man who we believe to be a serial child molester, recidivist. And uh, we believed the child. We believed the allegation. We had good reason for believing the allegation. And so, um, so he filed the case. With Ron Zonin and Tom Snedden at the helm of the prosecution, Mesero brought his legal partner, Susan Yu, on the Jackson case to handle critical matters, in addition to local counsel. Mesero, again, by phone. She attended the University of California in Berkeley. She grew up in Northern California, and she went to Syracuse University Law School. I met her years ago when I was subleasing space from her law firm. And we became friends, and then we decided to become law partners. One reporter wrote that if Mesero was the bold, shining name on the marquee, Susan Yu was the bright, shining light beaming behind the marquee letters. I realized she was a terrific lawyer who I thought complimented me very well. She has, you know, organizational skills and uh, a perspective on cases and trials. She's a younger generation. She's a different gender. I always felt that I could look at things much better if I had her perspective. For a high-profile trial, jury selection was expected to take weeks, perhaps even months. 4,000 summonses, letters, intended to yield 750 perspectives, then further winnowing, were issued to residents in Santa Barbara County, 
hoping to find 12 impartial jurors and eight alternates. The judge tried to create an initial group of 750 prospective jurors. On January 31, 2005, the first 300 juror candidates appeared at the Santa Maria Court campus, past a crowd of Jackson fans and media trucks to be questioned in groups by the judge for a position on the jury. The defense table, Thomas Mesero, Susan Yu, a local criminal attorney named Robert Sanger, and a longtime Jackson family lawyer and confidant, Brian Oxman, sat as opposition to the prosecution. District Attorney Tom Sneddon, his co-counsel, Senior Deputy DA Ron Zonin, and Deputy DA Gordon Auchincloss. Prosecution and defense teams came up with a lengthy juror questionnaire that Judge Melville cut down to only seven pages, with just about 40 questions total. He also gave the lawyers 10 minutes each to question potential jurors. As a result, as a result, jury selection went very quickly. Judge Rodney Melville, again speaking at an event for the Los Angeles County Bar Association. We selected 12 jurors and eight alternates. Our jury box only had 14 chairs. In anticipation of this and to save money, Daryl went on eBay and found theater seating available for $46 a seat. We had a quote that up to that point of $10,000 for new jury chairs. So, uh, including shipping, we paid $46 a chair for 20 chairs. Selection took five court days. Four men, eight women. Their ages ranged from 20 to 79. There was one Asian, four Hispanics, one younger man in a wheelchair. There were no African Americans among the 12 main jurors. Wait, hold on. Just I have a, just a quick question. Go ahead. All right. So while we're on juries, I'm still wondering about the previous um, grand jury hearing. Didn't you say that if the case went to trial, the transcripts would become public? That's correct. But Mesereau felt the information was so prejudicial, he made a motion to keep it sealed. I made a motion to keep that information sealed unless or until it naturally arose during the course of the trial. And what I mean by that is if you used it to cross-examine a witness, you know, et cetera, or to refresh a witness's recollection, um, that would be a natural need for that transcript by either side in the trial. But short of that, I wanted everything sealed because it was so prejudicial. The judge granted my motion. On the first day of jury selection, I'm getting dressed in my condominium. I turn on... I think it was Good Morning America, and the lead story is they have the grand jury transcripts. So somebody, despite the gag order and the rules, tried to prejudice the defense by leaking that information to the media. 1,900 pages of grand jury transcripts were leaked to ABC News and thesmokinggun.com and featured lurid testimony from Jackson's accusers about the alleged molestation. Prior to the leak of the grand jury transcripts, Judge Rodney Melville instituted a series of ground rules for both the prosecution and the defense. Here he is speaking at the L.A. County Bar Association event. I, I granted a motion made by the district attorney made to prohibit parties from making statements without prior approval of the court to the media. I granted that motion 
and it required that whenever either side wanted to make a statement, they would have to file an ex parte request, which we would do on short time. We could even do it over the phone if we wanted. And that was how we handled the statements to the media. I think that it was a good way to do it. It didn't prevent statements to the media, but it did stop what I call surprise volleys from each side over uh, you know, using the press to play your position. So I was quite happy with that um, procedure. Because of the leak of the grand jury transcripts, Judge Melville granted Thomas Mesereau's request to allow Michael Jackson to make a public statement to address the negative media coverage. In the last few weeks, a large amount of ugly, malicious information has been released into the media about me. Apparently, this information was leaked through transcripts in a grand jury proceeding, where neither my lawyers nor I ever appeared. The information is disgusting and false. In the response video, which appeared on Jackson's website, the singer faced the camera, wearing heavy makeup and a silk blue button-up shirt, his wig with long, straightened hair. It looked very much like a repeat of the 1993 satellite video in which he stated his innocence in the midst of the allegations of Geordie Chandler. Years ago, I allowed a family to visit and spend some time at Neverland. Neverland is my home. I allowed this family into my home because they told me their son was ill with cancer and needed my help. Through the years, I have helped thousands of children who were ill or in distress. These events have caused a nightmare for my family, my children, and me. I never intend to place myself in so vulnerable a position ever again. I love my community, and I have great faith in our justice system. Please keep an open mind and let me have my day in court. I deserve a fair trial like every other American citizen. I will be acquitted and vindicated when the truth is told. Thank you. At the time, Jackson attorney Thomas Mesro also had to deal with Jackson associates and family members speaking on the singer's behalf to the media. Here's Mesro speaking by phone. To my great chagrin, Jesse Jackson showed up and started going from media booth to media booth. And I didn't want this. I didn't want civil rights leaders uh, appearing on Michael Jackson's behalf. You know, we didn't have one African-American on the jury. We had a black alternate. But I did not want anyone to suggest this was a race-based case. Michael Jackson brings all races together, that he chose Santa Maria and Santa Barbara County as his home, that he had children of different races. He made a statement one time that he wanted, he'd love to adopt a child from every continent and every race. My whole theory was he brings everyone together. That's why when I got in the case, I didn't want a nation of Islam to be prominent. I didn't want Jermaine saying it's a legal lynching on TV. I didn't want Joe Jackson going on TV calling it a legal lynching. I didn't want anything that might offend the white jurors and make them feel uncomfortable about race. Attorney Carl Douglas weighed in on the issue of race during his appearance at the 2010 L.A. County Bar Association event. I think that there probably would have been a difference had the matter been tried in Los Angeles because I think he would have been afforded the opportunity to have a more diverse jury than he would have had in Santa Barbara. I'm the only African-American lawyer that is up on this panel and I've been practicing law both in criminal and civil courts in Los Angeles for the last 30 years. 
and I factor in race in everything that I do. Like it or not, it is a reality that I have to face to my peril if I ignore it. And I suggest that if there had been a trial in Los Angeles with a six-month estimate and the need to first pre-qualify a jury panel for hardships, I would gather that there would likely have been more prospective jurors that looked more like Mr. Jackson than there probably were in Santa Maria. And by that token, there would probably have been a healthier cynicism to some of the police-based attacks. Rightly or wrongly, African-American communities loved Michael Jackson and rejected the allegations both in 93 and in 2005. To prepare for the trial, Judge Melville contacted judges from the trials of Scott Peterson and Kobe Bryant for advice on maintaining decorum in the courtroom. One of the biggest concerns, of course, was the media. And the man in charge of working with the media was this guy. I'm Peter Shaplin, and during the 2005 trial, I was the media pool coordinator for both the media and interfacing with the sheriff and with the courts. If you were in the press or in law enforcement in Santa Barbara at the time, you knew his name, and ideally, you had his phone number. For many logistical reasons, as well as editorial, when a large high-profile trial comes to a courthouse, it just causes difficulties and stresses and strains on the infrastructure, on the people, on the sheriff. And very often there are decorum orders signed by the judge that limit where the media can go or what they can do or how they behave. It can include a pool camera or cameras. It can include access, credentials, um, even a, uh, an overflow room that's an auxiliary courtroom for the media. But all that has to be organized and scheduled and paid for. And the pool coordinator is basically responsible for making that happen. For Peter Shaplin and the city, the Jackson case was unlike anything that had come before. The Jackson trial in Santa Barbara County was different from other high-profile trials, largely because of its size, its global interest, security concerns, the fact that they, the defendant was free to come and go to the courthouse, that made a very big difference as well. The local uh, Santa Maria Police Department would pick him up with a number of their motorcycle units as he entered the southern end of town. They would stay with him on the freeway, take him through the off-ramp, and then bring him up to the courthouse itself and in through a gate inside security fence so that he could get out and walk into the courthouse. And he left the exact same way. So you had an awful lot of, I'm going to call it coordination, that was handled very, very well between Highway Patrol, Santa Maria, uh, Police, Santa Barbara County Sheriff. But that got him to and from the courthouse. Now this created another problem. What were you going to do for lunch? Lunch breaks would have meant that he had yet another exit and entrance. And where was he going to go eat? And what kind of scrum would that involve? Because, of course, remember in California, anytime you have a motorcade, you can immediately think the white Bronco, OJ's white Bronco. And so the sheriff was very much concerned, along with the 
the, the local police. If he left for lunch, where would he go? What would that stakeout be like? How many cars would follow him? And then returning him to the courthouse and then leaving. Because of these concerns, Judge Melville decided to begin court at 8.30 a.m. and end around 3 p.m. without a lunch break. Instead, he inserted three 10-minute breaks. And I will tell you one thing about the trial that I don't know if people understand, but the trial was actually the judge and counsel all agreed that this trial would go from 8 in the morning to 2 in the afternoon and there would be no lunch break. This is true crime author Aphrodite Jones. I'm a true crime author. I'm a true crime host of television. Jones was present as a reporter at the trial and she currently hosts a podcast called This Is Murder. Nearly everyone I talked to from the Michael Jackson trial, despite their standing in the legal world, media, or in public affairs, they all had one central complaint about the trial. No lunch breaks. Now, why was this? It was because they could not afford the security risk of having Jackson leave for lunch and come back again and leave again. They couldn't afford it. The town couldn't afford it. And the media couldn't afford the whole disruption of all the gates and all the fencing uh, barricades. So, hence, we as the people who had seats in the courtroom were forced to get there by 6.30 in the morning, get into our seats by 7-something. There were 10-minute breaks to go to the uh, restroom. Other than that, we were prisoners inside that courtroom. And I can tell you, it doesn't seem like a long period of time, but when you have no real breaks and you are being breathed upon by deputies every second, and you they've taken away all your cell phones and anything else, and all you've got is a piece of paper and a pencil, and you've got to be silent and can't have a sip of water, you feel like a prisoner. Oh, yes. It, it was difficult and taxing on reporters who, um, when, the, when the breaks came, short as they were, they had to leave the courtroom, go through the magnetometer, and then pick up their phones. Former media pool coordinator Peter Shaplin. Phones were confiscated before you went into the courtroom. We had several large wicker baskets. People just tossed their phones into them as they as they went through the magnetometer and entered the courthouse through the courtroom security. So you now have folk rushing out, searching frantically for their phone, grabbing their phone. In some cases, they're just checking in with their office. In many cases, and I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the great Linda Deutsch. Linda Deutsch is a famed Associated Press trial reporter. And I covered high-profile trials. That was my specialty, Uh, starting way back with Sirhan and Manson and going on through any trial you want to name, except for, I always say I covered everything except Socrates, the Rodney King trials, the Angela Davis trial, the Patty Hearst trial, DeLorean, um, Menendez Brothers, O.J. Simpson was a major one, and of course, Michael Jackson. Over her 48 years with the Associated Press, Linda Deutsch has been lauded for her fairness in reporting. And I don't come in with any preconceived notion of guilt or innocence. Deutsch's courtroom coverage of the O.J. case was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Talk about a startling event. He had not spoken to anyone at that point. He had just gotten out of jail. And uh, when he called the AP Bureau looking for me, they didn't, they didn't believe that it was him. I, somebody yelled out to them, 
somebody's on the phone and he thinks he's O.J. Simpson and he wants to talk to Linda. Uh, and so they put him in touch with me and I interviewed him on the phone. Um, he said he was calling to thank me for being fair during the trial and we talked. That was such a sensation that the AP had me go into New York that night, it was like midnight, to the Bureau because everybody wanted to interview me. The story at that point was me because I had talked to him. And um, it, it wound up being like an unbelievable experience. Every station sent limousines for me. I was on the Today Show. I was on the Good Morning America. I was on whatever the other third show was. I was on Larry King that night. Everybody wanted to know about OJ. And after that, I met him, and uh, and we got along, and and anytime he wanted to comment on anything, he called me. And if I needed comment from him on anything, I called him. I asked Linda Deutsch how she would compare the O.J. Simpson and Michael Jackson trials. Well, they're not really comparable because O.J. was charged with murder. Um, and also, um, O.J. was well-known in the United States, but he was not well-known overseas. So Michael's trial was really the trial of the most famous man in the world at that point. The media encampment there ran 24 hours a day, six days a week, and then about 18 hours a day on Sundays. Peter Shaplin, former media pool coordinator. There were reporters whose filing deadlines were relentless. But then you'd also have a reporter who dashed out to tell the audience, well, what happened in the first part of the morning? And another reporter might well go in taking that seat in order to report on the at the next break. You'd have the first crews coming in around about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning to do the morning domestic shows. And you'd have the European crews coming in around about 4 or so in the morning to do their evening programs back in, in Europe. And then you had throughout the day, morning newscasts, both for Eastern time zones and Western time zones. You would then have entertainment-driven shows throughout the, the middle of the day. Of course, you had cable going morning, noon, and night. You had evening newscasts. Now the networks, the American networks, tended not to take the story, but certainly every local station that was there did. And so that meant you had Los Angeles and San Francisco and Santa Barbara County and Sacramento stations, all of which staffed the trial. And then you had affiliate services feeding stories to the networks all across the country. Then you came, sometimes uh, you came to the evening shows, now there were combinations of the entertainment kind of uh, strip shows that, that come on, usually in an access, like seven o'clock local time. You would then sometimes have an evening program. Sometimes you would have a network special kind of program. You'd have the 11 o'clock news on the East Coast, that's eight Pacific time. Then it would work its way through the central time zones and ultimately be 11 o'clock on the Western time zones. And then you'd have um, coming up right after that, you'd have the morning shows in Europe. So it was a constant cycle. The plaza was always hot. We had our own power distribution grid that we put in, that the media put in, that was turned on 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, for months at a time. Even to the point that when we needed fuel, we had to do what's called wet fueling. The fuel trucks came to the to the courthouse to give us fuel, and that required the pool arranging with Santa Barbara County Fire. They had to have an engine company there as well, since it was wet fueling. So, not to not to make it sound like oh gosh, look at all of that, but really to say that it was not a circus. It was really very well organized. And they made their deadlines. Now you could make an argument: Did this story deserve constant coverage? That's not for me to decide. That's not even for me to speculate. Well, you you had more accredited media cover the case than O.J. Simpson and Scott Peterson combined, and that means a lot of media. Jackson attorney Thomas Mazzaro. But I was cut off from all of that. I deliberately didn't get involved in any of that, and media were always trying to tempt me to get involved. Uh, trying to get to me through people I knew or whatever. According to Mesereau, the media's coverage of the second Jackson case was incredibly biased. I think that media was extremely one-sided. I mean, why would Court TV have Diane Diamond reporting the case? First of all, she's not a lawyer, and Court TV at the time was the preeminent, you know, trial station. Uh, they knew that Michael had sued Diane Diamond in the mid-90s, they knew that Steden had assisted her in that lawsuit with a declaration. All right, so what's this lawsuit with Diane Diamond all about? Okay, so there's a lot of wormholes, obviously, in the Michael Jackson cases. And one of them that requires clarification involved Diane Diamond and a man named Victor Gutierrez. All right, Victor Gutierrez, got it. So Gutierrez was this freelance writer type guy. And according to the LA Times, he self-published this book called Michael Jackson Was My Lover. Oh, great. I mean, that title's not salacious at all. (laughs) It was supposedly based on Jordan Chandler's diary, even though as far as we know, Jordy never had a diary. Jackson fans also look at it as pro-pedophilia because he thanked Nambla in the author's notes. Oh, my God. But the book was really sort of this adaptation of the leaked Department of Children Family Services report from the Jordy Chandler case, if you remember that happening. And as you can imagine, it featured lurid graphic details of the alleged sexual relationship between Jackson and Jordy Chandler. Oh, is it? I mean, is it still out? Like, did you read it or? I found parts of what appear to be the book online, and if it is, it's pretty disgusting either way. To bolster that disgust, according to the LA Times in 1995, Gutierrez claimed to Diane Diamond, who was working at hard copy at the time, that there was supposedly a new investigation of Michael Jackson surrounding a black and white 27-minute long videotape of the singer molesting a young boy. It was supposedly caught on one of Jackson's private security cameras. Yeah, I, I feel like I kind of remember this, actually. Yeah, and according to the lawsuit, Diamond repeated Gutierrez's claims on KBC AM morning radio show and again for a story on hard copy. And as a result, Jackson sued not only Gutierrez, but Diane Diamond, radio station KBC, and Paramount, which produced hard copy. Right, and was there a tape at all? No, no, there was no tape. And that was bad news for all the defendants, obviously. But the state's second district appellate court ruled that even though Diane Diamond had made an error, Jackson could not 
that she was reckless because she said she was following leads and checking with the DA's office who refused to her to confirm or deny the existence of the tape. Okay, so is there any truth to Mesereau saying that Tom Snedden like, ever assisted Diamond in fighting the lawsuit? Well, the truth, according to Diane Diamond, is that Tom Snedden made a declaration saying that he spoke to her on the phone before she reported the story, and he didn't confirm or deny that the DA's office was looking for the tape. So in a way, perhaps you could say he assisted her winning a dismissal of the lawsuit against her, but it was this Gutierrez guy who apparently made the whole thing up to begin with. Man, okay. I mean, talk about a close call for Diane Diamond. I mean, what this Gutierrez guy did was beyond, like, beyond the pale. I mean, it's just so uh-huh. totally bizarre. Yeah, but what part of this story isn't bizarre? <sighs> yeah. You know, and of course, this Gutierrez snafu is part of the reason why Diane Diamond is so despised within the Jackson fan community and is to some journalists kind of a polarizing figure. Right. So, uh, so whatever happened to Gutierrez? Well, according to the LA Times, he did not get out of that lawsuit and ended up being ordered to pay 2.7 million to Jackson. And the LA Times also said right before the trial began that he filed for bankruptcy and then best we can tell he fled to Chile. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sure. Why not? Why not Chile? Is it Chile or is it Chile? I think it's Chile, but I'm from Michigan. So I say Chile like Chili's the restaurant. There you go. Yeah, and comments and stories about Gutierrez are all over projects and fan sites who track his different careers. But the point is, because of his reportedly fake Jordy Chandler book and because of his connection to Diane Diamond from the reporting and lawsuit, he continues to be this kind of nexus for Jackson conspiracy theorists. Like, fans believe his fake Jordy Chandler book was a blueprint for some of the later accusers who appeared in the HBO documentary Leaving Neverland, or he's part of a cabal with Sony or any other of a number of complicated, bizarre plot lines. Okay, okay. you Man, you gotta slow down. So, like, the bottom line is this guy is a shoddy writer. Is that right? I mean, I think the bottom line is that Victor Gutierrez is a piece of shit, and <laughs> Diane Diamond didn't help her reputation by relying on this piece of shit guy. Um, and because of her reporting on the 93-94 case and her connection to this piece of shit Gutierrez guy, Jackson fans hate her. And there's a tons of videos online made by Jackson fans who nicknamed her Diane Demon. Oh, I see what they did there. Yeah, like instead of diamond. (laughs) (laughs) I I get it. I get it. To this day, I get death threats. Reporter Diane Diamond. I don't take them very seriously, but I get death threats from Michael Jackson fans all over the country, all over the world. Germany, Ireland, the UK, Binghamton, New York, San Diego, California. And I'm uh, responsible for his death, they say. Like, I put the propofol needle in his arm? Come on. Um, and that I'm a wicked witch, and uh, the district attorney and I must have had an affair together. You know, it, it's just, it amazes me how many people have these opinions about my book having never read my book. <laughs> Full disclosure, Diane Diamond's book on the Jackson cases, Be Careful Who You Love, was a source for telephone stories. I didn't bring down Michael Jackson. I reported on him in 93 and 94. I followed it up in 2003 when they raided Neverland. I covered the trial and I wrote a book. 
I've had a whole body of work in between there, you know, and I have to almost shake my head and laugh every time I get a Twitter message that says, I'm coming to kill you. Really? I look them up. They live in Norway. So should I be worried? Probably not. Is there a chance that there's one crazy person out there that might find their way to my neck of the woods? Well, maybe. But I'm just not going to live my life like that. Meanwhile, as the trial got underway, Michael Jackson fans descended on Santa Maria. The fans always came early in the morning, and there was a a chain-link fence between the entry to the courthouse and the street. AP reporter Linda Deutsch. And the fans would be on the other side of the chain-link fence with placards, you know, saying, Free Michael and Michael's Innocent. And every day we would be marched in the press by deputies past this phalanx of fans. And they would be chanting, Michael's innocent, Michael's innocent, the press are liars, the press are liars. And I would look at them and I'd wave happily. I just didn't really, you know, I knew they were upset. Judge Rodney Melville appearing at an event for the L.A. County Bar Association. One of the um, interesting sidelights to these signs was that the fans showed up every day with huge numbers of signs saying all sorts of different things on the signs. And at night, they would uh, lay the signs down on the ground and they would take rocks from around the courthouse complex and stack them on the signs to hold them because one of the things I didn't tell you Santa Maria is known for is its high winds. It is, has a lot of winds. So they were holding their signs down at night with these rocks. Well. The sheriff's department thought they were piling rocks as weapons. <laughs> and so one night they carefully removed all the rocks. That got rid of the problem of signs. I mean, the signs all blew away, and uh, we didn't see near as many signs after that, and I don't think there's a rock on the courthouse complex to this day. The case attracted its share of fans. Former media pool coordinator Peter Shaplin. And the fans really ran the gamut of um, uh, what you might expect. There were, for instance, people who just wanted to come because there was a chance to be on camera. The example of that would be the PETA demonstrators who showed up one day dressed in, uh, in leaves. Uh, and they, were, they had nothing to do with the trial, but the cameras were there. You had fans from Michael who came and sometimes they sort of got, I don't say short, short shrift, but, oh, they were just fans. Oh, they're just fans. But if you went out to speak with them, many of them had these most amazing, impassioned stories to tell. I recall one story of a lady from Europe who had been very, very sick and in hospital. And every day, all she could do throughout her recovery was to listen to Michael Jackson music. And she said it got her through her illness. And now the least that she could do would be to come to California to stand by Michael because he had been by her. Now, you might say, well, that's just a fan. That's just a fanatic. That can't be serious. Well, they were serious. And they were sincere. And they should not be taken or dismissed lightly. There were fans and people who loved Michael 
who felt this need, this desire, but this need that they had to be at the gate, at the cyclone fence, in order to show their support for him when he arrived and when he left. Despite the chaos outside of the courtroom gates, Tom Snedden and co-counsels Gordon Auchincloss and Ron Zonin readied themselves for the trial. I mean, we already had a pretty good sense that this wasn't going to be the normal case. We were dealing with an international superstar. We knew the press was going to be all over it. Former prosecutor Ron Zonin. Um, We knew that there were going to be skeptics, serious skeptics, accusing us of all manner of of unfair and inappropriate motives. But um, we had multiple children who over the years had accused Michael Jackson of the same thing, and we knew that he was spending time in their beds, and and this was an articulate, intelligent child um, who we believed. We believed it was true. We believed that he had molested Jordan Chandler. We, we believed that he had molested four or five other kids, um, some of whom were paid off in the process as well. And um, it, it never really occurred to us to say, well, it's too burdensome, or it's too complicated, or it's uh, uh, too traumatizing, or he had more money than we had, which was true, and more money to spend on the defense than we had on the prosecution, which was true. We knew that we believed that the allegations were true. We believed that we had a a reasonable likelihood of being able to win the case. And we uh, made the determination to go forward. With the state's case ready, Jackson's attorneys prepared for a trial that would aim to quash the rumors and scandals that had dogged Jackson for the latter part of a decade once and for all. In my experience, he had two very different sets of lawyers. Reporter Diane Diamond. In the beginning, it was Burt Fields, Weitzman, and then Johnny Cochran. Now, flash forward many years, we're at the criminal trial, 2005, and he's got Tom Mesereau and Susan Yu. And Tom Mesereau, I believe, believed that the Gavin Arviso allegations were all a big hoax. I got that impression from Mesereau. He's a very good lawyer. He's a very passionate lawyer. He's a big, imposing man. And he felt Michael Jackson was a very special person, completely misunderstood, and that these people, like everybody else in Michael Jackson's life, was out for his money. It's important to remember these investigations of Jackson weren't just questions about sexual predilections and malfeasance in his private life. The contests in 1993 and 2005 were fights for Jackson's viability as an entertainer, his relevance as a music icon, and perhaps most importantly, his earning ability as an artist. You know, it's a lawyer's job to defend their client. It it was more important to protect Michael Jackson than to sit back and say, hmm, maybe there's something to this. I will tell you that I got the impression from them it was a war. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Nona Yates. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor, Jason Diaz is our recording engineer, and our associate producer is Tess Ryan, with production assistance coming from Namir Kalik. 
John Ahern composed our original music, and our cover art is by Jacob Sanders. Special thanks to the good people at the Los Angeles County Bar Association for their permission to use extensive clips for this episode. LACBA serves attorneys, judges, and other legal professionals through committees, networking events, and pro bono opportunities, as well as public service and informational resources. You can find out more about the good work they do at lacba.org. I'd also like to give a shout out to a listener who goes by SB, who emailed us a tip about clarifying California Civil Code 1669.5, its origins and impact. SB also helped us to make sense of the wormhole that is Victor Gutierrez. If you have questions or comments on the show, or want to shower us with praise, email feedback at telephonestoriespod.com. Oh, hi, Maddie. What you need? Nothing. I just need water. Okay, can I get you water as soon as I'm off the phone? Yeah. Okay. You know, that's not a phone. Well, it's a microphone. Oh, you got one more Oreo. Okay. You need to really cool it with the sweets. Well, you'll see, dude. (laughs) You'll see. By the time time your kids are three, they're going to be juggling knives, running up and down the stairs, and putting and hiding in the refrigerator. And and you know what? When they wake up in the morning and they say, Dad, can I have Mentos for breakfast? You'd be like, yeah, sure, Mentos. Absolutely. <laughs> Due to feces. A correction for this episode. The section regarding Diane Diamond and Victor Gutierrez left out several details. According to Diamond, Jackson fans began to despise her beginning in August 1993, after she first reported on the Chandler accusations. In 1995, Diamond broke the news that the dormant Jackson investigation had been reactivated. She had been assigned by her bosses at Hardcopy to work with freelance reporter Gutierrez, who said he had discovered there was a videotape of Michael Jackson engaged in sexual activity with a boy. Diamond says she was reluctant to use an outside reporter as a source, but she was instructed to interview Gutierrez on camera and include his allegation in a one-minute and 40-second story. Diamond says hard copy ran the item only after her own sources at the Los Angeles and Santa Barbara District Attorney's offices confirmed that they were investigating the existence of such a tape. Diamond says she did not report there was definitely a tape, only that law enforcement was following up on Victor Gutierrez's tip. In the end, no videotape was found, and Jackson filed a $100 million lawsuit against Gutierrez, Paramount, Hardcopy, and Diane Diamond. Because her sources from the LADA's office and Santa Barbara DA Tom Snedden both gave sworn declarations asserting that Diamond had duly called them and confirmed the reactivation of the case, Diamond was found to have displayed no malice. She, Paramount, and Hardcopy were all dismissed from the lawsuit. As stated before, Victor Gutierrez was ordered to pay Jackson damages, and he fled the country. <laughs>